This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the California Institute of Integral Studies. It is an amazing honor to have Dr. Yalom here with us, Irv Yalom. Tonight's a celebration. It really is. And it's of Irv's life and work, so beautifully, really written about in his new book, Becoming Myself. And I want to say that this book... I don't know, the power of this book to me is learning about what informs him, what informs Irvialum in his life in terms of the tremendous work that he's done. And I see in this book, your youth, that so many things that have happened in your life that really lead you to this place. So I'm going to start with a quote, and it's a quote that Irv uses in his book, and it's a one that is from Charles Dickens. For as I draw closer and closer to the end, I travel in the circle, nearer and nearer to the beginning. The framework for my questions tonight will be about this. And I want to begin. First question. So, you were born in Washington, D.C. And I want to quote you in your book, as you say, out of place, out of place. The only white kid in a black neighborhood and the only Jew in a Christian world. So the question is, how has outsiderness informed your life. There are a lot of students and people from lots of places here that I think will relate to this question. Well, um, how has it informed my life? That's a rather difficult question. I could easily answer the question of how has it uh, tormented my life and caused me a great deal of, of difficulties and felt like very much like an outsider for a great deal of my life. As, as If you see the read the memoir, my, my life is sort of sliced into two parts. The first 15 years or so, I lived in Washington in a black neighborhood. Washington was segregated in black and white. The reason I was in a black neighborhood was because my father owned a liquor and grocery store, and they were always owned by white people. And so I was plunked in the middle of this black neighborhood, and I also had to travel a few blocks to go to, to into the white neighborhood for elementary school, and I was the only only Jewish boy in the class. So I felt out of place in, in both places. Um, and um, one, one of the things that that meant was that I spent a lot of time in the library. Uh, it was a safe place. The neighborhood was uh, was dangerous. 
Uh, and my parents uh, were delighted to see me in the library and spending time there. In fact, I even wheedled them into buying me a nice new bicycle because I could go there and spend much of my Saturdays there. But I could go on about the library for a long time. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> but thank you for thank that. You. The second is the presence of your mother wafts throughout the pages of this book. And you say that this relationship is, quote, an open sore all of your life. Mostly, I was struck by the story of your father's heart attack, your mother's rage, and the moment that you feel led to you becoming a psychiatrist. Could you share that? Yeah, that was a fairly horrific scene that was about, uh, oh, I don't know how old I was then. I must have been about uh, 11 or 12. My father had a serious uh, coronary. Almost all the males in my family died of coronaries at a very young age. I've been a vegetarian, near vegetarian for many years. The only reason I think I'm still alive. But he, having this coronary, he must have been 49 or so, and uh, whenever something bad happened, my mother resorted to primitive thinking, which is if something bad happened, there's got to be a cause of that, and the cause of that was usually me. And so she she turned to me and said, you know, you, you killed him, you killed him. And I'm, uh, I'm uh, really uh, extremely uh, pained at that point and thinking, you know, he's not dead, you idiot, stop saying that. Uh, and um, finally, the the doctor came in the middle of the night. In those days, doctors made house calls, and I could hear the car crunching the leaves outside. It was in the autumn, and the doctor came in, and I ran down the steps to greet him, and he rubbed my hair, and then he let me listen to my father's heart, uh, my father's heart through a stethoscope, and he said, look, you hear the ticking? It's, it's quite regular. There's nothing to worry about. He gave him an injection to calm him, some morphine, I have no doubt. Uh, and that was an un, unforgettable evening for me. I think that was the, the, the day I decided that in some way he had, he'd given me something so valuable that, uh, that I it was determined that I would, I would pass that on to others. And I think at that time I decided that I would, I would be a doctor, I'd, some kind of a doctor, and, and pass something on to others. You know, the seating is such, I'm not looking over here, so I'm quite, I'll try, try to move around a bit. So that, that, was, that was one important part of my life, a scene I've never forgotten. It was very touching to me. My father lived for another 20 years after that, although he was pretty much a cardiac cripple with a severe angina. Uh, thank you. I'm going to jump a little bit. I've been moving in sequence from the beginning, but I'm just going to jump to one of Irv's stories, um, his book, Love's Executioner, for a moment. And it, it's going to guide us through a couple of other questions. And this power of stories that really is something because the humanness that you share in these stories, I think, really touches so many people. Um, it's the sort of all-too-human response to our clients and patients. And it, it 
always seemed to me that it seems like some kind of reconciliation of this, these very human responses to your patient's dilemmas with your sensibility as a psychiatrist and your ethical responsibility as a psychiatrist. But I would love for you to read these famous lines. I think everyone's going to know them. Um, and they're just the first five lines of Love's Executioner. I do not like to work with patients who are in love. Perhaps it's because of envy. I too crave enchantment. Perhaps it's because love and psychotherapy are fundamentally incompatible. The good therapist fights darkness and seeks illumination, while romantic love is sustained by mystery and crumbles upon inspection. I hate to be love's executioner. Why are you willing to be love's executioner? <laughs> well, in this particular case, it was because the the um, the type of romantic love was not reciprocated. It was uh, it became the uh, com the be all of this woman's life, and it was leading her into into dangerous territory because it was love that was unrequited. So I had to had to inspect that. But ordinarily, people in love are are disinclined to to want to examine closely what's going on. They're kind of enjoying it too much. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so this so this leads me to back to the beginning. And I want to move from this question that, you know, moves from love's executioner to maybe I want to say love's confidant. <laughs> and it's really about the power of your primary relationship with your wife for 63 years. I think you have known her since you were both 15. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just runs through the book as a loving, creative current. And I mean, it reminds me, you know, probably with a little envy, of course, um, of one of those I-thou or I-you relationships that Martin Buber talks about. And I guess I just want to ask, um, you know, I keep using the word inform, but it's a pretty major part of your life and, and how it informs just you personally, but also your work, both things. And then we can go into your quote. Well, I, I um, had transferred into this new section of town. I felt very much like an outsider there. I uh, went to a, uh, um, a, a different school. Uh, I was uh, gambling with my bum friends in the bowling alley, and one of them said to me, hey, there's a party at Marilyn Koenig's house. Let's, let's go. I, I'm very shy. I didn't want to go to parties, and I said no thanks, but he dragged me along. And we, we came to this small row, row of houses, row houses in Washington, D.C., if any of you have been there, it was about 4th and Gallatin Streets. And, um, and there was a, a large bolus of, of, of teenagers outside of her front door trying to get into the house. 
at which point I, I, I turned around and decided to go on home. My, my friend Lou said, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got an idea. Uh, and uh, we, he went onto the porch and opened the window and crawled through the window. So I followed him, and as soon as we got into the, into the room, he took off looking for something to drink. And I saw this little tiny, she's very, very, very uh, short and small, but very, very pretty and uh, uh, sort, of, sort of really enchanting. Everybody standing there talking to a large crowd of people and very much unlike me. I've never done anything like this. I just sort of squirmed my way through the crowd and <laughs> I went up to her and I didn't quite know what to say except, uh, hi, I'm Irv Yalom. I just crawled through your window. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was about all but I, I called her the next day and uh, I had my first date with, uh, with a woman and, uh, and we found uh, that we were both readers she told me that she had been up all night last week reading Gone with the Wind and had to stay home from school the next day because she was too tired and I thought that was so lovable <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so we both we both in our conversation uh, went very much into what we were reading, and I, I'm an inveterate, uh, almost addictive novel reader. I hardly any time in my life go to sleep without, except for my four years of medical school, except for uh, and 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 reading a novel, and that goes to this to this very day. Thank you. That's precious. So now I'm gonna move to another phase, and it is the phase of you writing teaching novels and moving from psychological research to beginning to look at writing novels. And these novels, particularly, um, had a lot to do with history. And as you say, Fiction is history that might have happened and that tremendous creativity has come in this process. And, you know, such as how could our field have been altered, improved upon, if Nietzsche played a role? If he had therapy or analysis? You know, because the woman he fell in love with in 1882 was Lou Andreas Salome, an analyst and a, a patient of Freud's. So in reading these, it, it is so thrilling because it feels like detective work, um, imagination. I mean, it's kind of thrilling. And I guess I would love to know, Irv, about this creative process because just the way you take history and you have one person speaking to another and you go back and forth in history, tremendous amount of research, but it's incredibly thrilling. Well, let me try and answer that by going back uh, a bit earlier because um, I've, I've always been interested in storytelling um, and narrative, not coming from my sense of reading. I was uh, you know, son of, of refugees, Jewish refugees, and, and there weren't many uh, pathways for us that were evident. Maybe in another, in another century, I might have become a, a, a novelist or a writer. But in those days, uh, uh, to to join the American culture, the the 
best way seemed to be to be a doctor. In fact, there was a joke that we always used to tell uh, that for, for young Jewish males, they had only uh, two choices in life. They could be a doctor or they could be a failure. Uh, so, so, so that, that was what I was facing. So I, I, I went to medical school, but I loved writing and writing stories and always felt that a novel would be the very best thing that a person could do in life. Uh, but when I started writing textbooks, for example, if you'll notice the group therapy textbook, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's been a successful textbook. I think one of the reasons it's been successful is that I've, I've bootlegged a lot of small stories in there. Oh, probably 30 or 40 of them. They're just short, maybe sometimes three or four lines, maybe occasionally a page or two. And I've heard many students say they're willing to put up with this boring book uh, because they know that another story might be coming along the corner here uh, soon. So I, I kind of bootlegged those, those stories in there and then gradually made more and more steps in using narrative. Um, I, I did that with a patient once who was a really good writer at, at Stanford and on a writing fellowship there. And uh, she, she um, was terribly shy and, uh, and also had uh, no money to pay Stanford for the treatment. And I made a bargain with her that we would each write up a summary of our session after each meeting, and at the end of a, a month or two, we'll exchange them and read what the others had to say. So for me, that was an exercise in writing, but knowing that it was going to be read by a really good writer, so I could kind of let myself go a little bit. Um, and um, after writing these, these textbooks, I, I decided to take a, a really big jump, and I had a sabbatical, one of the great perks of academia where you can get every seven years off, and I never missed that seventh year. And I took off for uh, took off for, for a year, and I went to Bali for the first for the first months there, and decided with a, just a, a large pack of, of case histories with me, and, um, uh, and and that's when I started to write Love's Executioner, and it was it was a wonderful experience. Uh, these are of course they're fictionalized, and then I've changed everything about the patient for reasons of disguise and confidentiality and also every patient read the story and gave me permission afterwards um, so I began writing and the stories were flowing uh, you know I'd be finishing a story and then the next story would somehow seep into my mind and suddenly I was aware of what I was going to write next and that was a, that was a great experience so I wrote I wrote Love's Executioner and then Sometimes after I finished that, I, I felt I wanted to embark on, 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 a, on a novel. I was being paid by Stanford all the time. I was a full-time Stanford faculty, and, and I, I was the teacher. So, and I felt that the stories were all teaching stories. I was teaching psychotherapy through the narrative, through teaching stories. And then I decided I, I will do the same thing in a novel. So I started the Nietzsche novel, and my idea was, well, what if, I, what if I were to take the student back to when psychotherapy was invented? Uh, invented is a strange word, yet, in fact, before psychotherapy came onto the scene with Freud and, and Breuer, there really was no, there was no incidence of psychotherapy. You never heard of a psychotherapist anywhere. And, um, and, and Freud really did... Um, 
that laid the groundwork for that. So what if you were to take the the student back to when therapy was being invented? Like taking an auto mechanic, you know, or, or, or you know, but back to the factory and let him see how cars are put together. It was I had that sort of idea in my mind. So um, so I began writing the, the Nietzsche novel by saying, let's go back to 1893 and see how therapy might have been invented. And what would it have looked like, by the way? What would it have looked like if it were invented not by a doctor, but by a philosopher? At that time, I was very interested in philosophy. In my second year of, of psychiatry training, I, a, a very important book came out. It was very important for me and for many. A book by Rollo May called Existence. Um, and th that book just suddenly reminded me of the fact that I think I better learn something about philosophy. And I became a student at that point, undergraduate student in my residency, taking philosophy courses. Because it was very evident to me, and Rollo was making that point too, that, that the, some of the, the, the pieces of wisdom that have been around for a couple thousand years are tremendously important tools that we might have in psychotherapy, and yet the, the field of psychiatry has really overlooked them. So, um, and, and I felt that Nietzsche, and I chose Nietzsche because he was, a, he was a man that had tremendous insights that are quite useful to us if they're incorporated in psychotherapy. There's a New York psychoanalytic Nietzsche society, which uh, very much fosters that approach right now. So that's a long question answer to that, that, that question. Yeah. I could go on and on with it, but maybe we'll go on to another one. Well, I think maybe now's a, a good moment. You were going to read a couple of pieces from okay. your book. Okay. And Well, let me just say a thing or two about how this book is put together. Um, I, I've been thinking of writing a memoir. I think a lot of writers think of that being their, their last book, and this is my last book. It's last in a double way. I mean, it's last, and that's the most recent book I've read. I've written, and I'm pretty sure it'll be the last book I, I write. You don't see many a novelist older than 86 writing books, uh, I, can, I can tell you that. And um, your memory's not good enough to write a novel because you can't remember what happened in the previous, <laughs> previous uh, chapters. So if I ever write, it'll be very short stories, I think. Um, so um, anyway, the, the, my daughter was telling me one day, she was talking about reading a book by a biologist and uh, I've forgotten which book it was, but he was taking a square yard of his lawn and was just going to microscopically discover all the living creatures on this square yard and do write a, a book of biology that would be very comprehensive, just starting with this very small space. And it occurred to me, well, what would have happened if I were to just take a day of my life now and um, seeing patients and what they... What, what memories they evoked for me, and could I possibly write a book that way? I'd never known a book being written like that. I'm sorry, I, I, I thought I would just just take a, a day in my life and, and take some events that occurred, some sessions with patients, and see what memories that evoked for me, and try to write a book like that, going through a day of my life. So that was the idea that I had in starting to write this book. And the first few chapters do that. 
uh, I'll take something that happened in therapy, and then that something that happened in therapy then evokes some memory of my life, and I go back to an earlier childhood memory. I was able to do that for five or six chapters at least, maybe a third or, uh, of the book or so, but I couldn't continue it once I got to be a late adolescent, and then it became more chronological. And and I kind of block my life in terms of which book I'm writing. That's uh, if, if we're we were Mary, my wife and I were driving along the other day, and we were passing a a turnoff uh, where I used to go to go to Rollo May's house. I was in therapy with Rollo for a while, and she's saying, "Oh yeah, it's where the turnoff to Rollo's house is." Well, see what year? What year was that? And the way I think was, well, when I went to Rollo May's house, I was writing existential psychotherapy. So that must have been 19, so I'd figured out what the date was. So I see my life as one book after the other. My wife's not crazy about that method. She she thinks I should write well, what child was being born then, or other things, but I, 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 my life is blocked out in terms of books. Uh, so that's the way, anyway, that's the way this book started. And... Um, I thought maybe I'd read a, a, a passage of my, my first psychiatric patient. Okay. I was starting a, a clerkship. There were about 10 faculty. I was in my third year of medical school. Uh, so that was 1955. The medical students uh, on this rotation in psychiatry is the first time I met psychiatry in medical school. Uh, were given a patient they had to work with for 12 weeks, and then somewhere along that line, they'd present the case to the uh, rather formidable faculty members, members of the Boston Psychoanalytic Society, and I'd watch them get crushed every week. It was really frightening, uh, and they seemed to try to top one another in showing how wrong the student was. So my turn came after I'd seen my patient for approximately eight sessions, and I quavered as I began. I decided, it was a very quick decision, recent uh, new decision, that I wasn't going to follow the example of the other presenters who used the formal, traditional structure of presenting patient. Patient's chief complaint, past history, family history, education, social history, etc. I thought I'd do something uh, that felt quite natural to me. I thought I'd tell a story. So in straightforward language... I described my first encounter with Muriel, who was waiting for me in the waiting room. She was a young, slim, attractive woman with vibrant red hair, downcast eyes, tremulous voice. I described our first meeting. I began by saying, telling her I was a medical student, just beginning my training, and that I'd be seeing her for the next 12 weeks. And I asked her why she sought help from our clinic. And she responded in a soft voice, I'm a lesbian. At that moment, I hesitated, swallowed hard, it was 1955, and replied, I don't know what that means. Uh, would you mind educating me? And so she did. She told me what lesbian meant and what her life was like. I asked questions to help her talk, told her that I admired her courage in speaking so openly. I said I'd do all that I could to be helpful to her during the next three months. 
next meeting, I acknowledged how embarrassed I was to admit my ignorance. She told me that her conversation had been a first for her. I was the first male to whom she revealed her true story, and it was exactly my honesty that made it possible for her to continue to be close. So I gave my case to the conference, bowed my head, waited for the onslaught to begin, and then nobody said anything. And the first, after the first few minutes, the Dr. Malamud, the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry, said, well, this case speaks for itself. I have nothing to add. And, and everyone else said that. And I walked out of that stunned. All I did was tell a story, which I did fairly easily. And uh, I left walking out of that thinking, well, maybe, maybe I have something special to give to this field. It was a big moment for me. I'm going to ask a quest, another question, and then we'll do another reading, and then the final question. So this is speaking about Schopenhauer's cure. And Philip, the sex addict, and Schopenhauer stand-in, and groups. So you added this material even to your group text in later years. And I just want to ask the question, what's, what's important about groups for healing? Well, I, I had uh, early experience with, with groups during my training. And at Hopkins, there was a, a, a group therapy pioneer named Jerome Frank. I don't know how well his name is known to you, but at that point, he was one of the first people who had written about groups. And I watched his group for the whole first year. There was a tiny little mirror about this big, this big, and all eight of our residents crammed their heads in. But we, this was... Um, we required for about three months, but I watched them for the whole year. I was so interested, and he gradually then began to ask me to sit in on the groups when he was out of town, uh, and became convinced that that groups had something uh, tremendously important to to offer. Um, and um, and at that point in my in my training, there was a, a wave of of theoretical thinking that was moving a little bit away from Freud's total emphasis on the first few years of life, but looking at the interpersonal uh, web around each person. How do they relate to people? This was, was America's, the United States' major addition to, to psychoanalytic thought. It's uh, looking at interpersonal thought. And the major theoretician, I don't know how and many of you know his name, was a man named Harry Stack Sullivan. And others that had come over from Europe were Eric Fromm, Karen Horney. Uh, these were important theorists who, who felt that uh, we we need to take a look at the all the relationships that people. And by and large, I began to feel that the reason people fall into despair is because of the lack of any close, intimate, uh, loving. A confidential relationship that one has with others. And there's nowhere better in a group in which you can begin to explore that. So I began to see the group as an arena in which we could uh, explore the way we relate to other people. And the, the, so we worked on the group process. The people in the group aren't working on their early life history. They're not telling stories about their past, but they're telling how they feel about each of the members of the group. So it becomes an analysis of, of each other. When I came to write the Schopenhauer novel, 
Uh, Schopenhauer, I felt, was was one of our, our great thinkers in many ways, but he was a, he was a, a tremendously unpleasant character. Uh, he was a misanthrope. Uh, he told this famous uh, porcupine parable that, that that porcupines, like humans, are. are cold and need to huddle together for warmth, but if they get too close to people, they, they prick one another, you have to move apart, so you've got to find your right distant relationship with people. So I began thinking that it, what would it be like if Schopenhauer were in a psychotherapy group? I mean, if a psychotherapy group could cure Schopenhauer, it could cure anybody. Uh, but I had to stay within history. Schopenhauer's of the 18th century, 19th century, early 19th century, and there was no therapy then of any sort. There was no group. I tried to think about well, the, I could think of an out of work Jesuit. The, the priest had, the pope had disbanded the Jesuit order for about 30 or 40 years at that point. There are a lot of Jesuits out of work then. So I thought maybe I'd have him go to a Jesuit. Uh, uh, forum for for a month or two, but that didn't work. So finally, I decided, well, I won't write a novel about Schopenhauer as I did about Nietzsche. I'll write a novel about a, a Schopenhauer, uh, a person who's exactly like Schopenhauer. Uh, kind of a, a, I modeled this person on, on Schopenhauer and then put him into a group. And then very much put this group of seven or eight people together, and I just wrote the book by having these eight people do therapy in their mind, and I just followed along what they did and what they said to one another and wrote the book. Um, the the newer editions of my group therapy textbook cross-reference that book as several pages of the book as, as teaching pages to see what happened. So in a way, it is a teaching novel. It's meant to be a teaching novel uh, about psychotherapy. And there's another additional thing in there. The, the uh, therapist has a develops a fatal illness has a multiple has a uh, malignant melanoma so i'm also dealing with the whole question of, of facing death and what that means to therapy and what that means to the patient what that means to the therapist so there's a lots of little different sub angles that i'm i'm working on in that novel well I, okay let's see I thought I'd write about, I, I told you about the first novel, the first patient I saw as a medical student. So this is the first patient I saw as a, as a psychiatric resident in my training. Um, so, I can't read it. I'll tell you the story. It's, it's not full of light. The first patient I saw when I was a resident uh, in my first year, I was assigned to a patient named Sarah. And she was uh, on our statue ward. And by statue ward, I meant a ward full of catatonic patients. And you don't see these patients today, but in the days before the major tranquilizers, the days before Thorazin, the state hospitals had wards in which everyone, was cat which everyone on that ward was catatonic. They stood still all day long. They didn't eat. They didn't talk. Uh, and it was just terribly difficult to be able to, to treat them uh, in, in any way. So this was a patient I, I was given. Uh, and she was a very a handsome woman, a woman in her 30s. Uh, and I, I knew very little about her. But I visited her every day. 
um, and uh, talked to her for 10 or 15 minutes. had no idea what to say. I had no supervisor who knew anything about what, how you treat these patients. And I would tell her what I had for breakfast. Uh, I would tell her what I had been talking about with my analyst that day or the day before, uh, talking about how annoyed I was with my analyst for not ever saying anything. Uh, <laughs> I would talk about the group meeting that had occurred on the ward and what some of the nurses said. I just paid my daily visit to her. And then after after seeing her for about, uh, oh, about uh, six weeks or so, she suddenly got up and walked across the room and gave me a big kiss on the lips. This sent me into absolute panic. Uh, I... Excuse myself, took her back to the ward, ran over as fast as I could to my supervisor. I uh, told him what had happened, that he couldn't. I told him everything except for the fact that I had really enjoyed the kiss. Uh, and, um, and so we went on working that way. Just about that time, one of the very, very early tranquilizers came out. You know, it's not known anymore because it had bad side effects on the liver, but it was called Pacatel. I gave her uh, a dose of that, and it transformed her within probably 24, 36 hours. And she was speaking again, uh, and uh, we didn't know how long that was going to last, but I visited her, of course, then every day as well. And I reflected back to her about how difficult it was for me to talk to her every day because I didn't feel I was doing anything for her, that I didn't know what to say to her. And what her response to me, I've never forgotten this, it was very good, important for young therapists to hear this. She said, oh, no, no, Dr. Yalom, you were my bread and butter. You were my bread and butter. I wasn't doing anything but giving her presence, paying attention to her, being close to her, telling her something about myself, being intimate with her. Um, and so that's, that's been a lesson that I got from my first patient that, I, that I've never forgotten. So, the last question. The last question is, I want to refer to your book, um, Staring at the Sun. And it's a book that's about looking at those things that are not so beautiful, um, that don't feel so good. And, and I think, as you've said in so many ways that yourself you've had anxiety about facing death and I guess I want to go to that place because what I, I'm touched by is that when you are afraid of something you move right into it and it's so I don't know sharp to me that not only the book but if any of you have seen October's article, um, Irv Yalom is, is um, interviewed here, and the name of the article is How to Die. And, you know, I guess I would, my question is just what, where you are with that now and your reflections as just in aging, what you're, what you're facing, and... And also the part that you've gained in, that you've learned from dying patients, you've worked on um, in hospitals with terminal patients, what you've both gained and where you are yourself. 
Well, there's a whole book in there. I, how long do I have? <laughs> five uh, minutes. Five minutes. All right. Uh, uh, a word about that article in the Atlantic. Um, a reporter called, and the Atlantic wanted to do a profile on me, and it was to come out. They said they would bring it out just the month before my my book came out. Uh, so the the um, publishers were over overcome with joy about that. But then I had a knee operation, a knee replacement. Uh, and the reporter called and said he wanted to see me, uh, and, and it was only five days after surgery. And I said, I, I'm much too sick. I was in terrible shape then. I never felt worse in my life. And he said, I've already bought the airline tickets, and they're non-refundable. And um, uh, it's either now or never. I, I'll have to cancel the article. My publisher would have killed me if I canceled this. So I, I saw him anyway, and feeling just terrible. He said, I'll just sit next to you in the hospital. And I, I was in terrible knee pain, and I was uh, dizzy all the time. So he interviewed me and wrote this article. And uh, it, it seems as though I'm about three-quarters dead in there. And I have had hundreds of emails from people wanting to say to me, they, they, there's something that about my book that was important to them. They wanted to thank me before I died. You know? And, <laughs> So there's a line by Mark Twain about, you know, his, his news of his death is greatly exaggerated, and that's, that is true with that. Uh, so, uh, but I, I, I had never felt worse, and I haven't recovered entirely from that. I'm still a little a problem with balance now. This was already three, four or five months ago. Um, but I had my first uh, exposure to that when I was, to death when I was, when I was writing my book on existential therapy, I knew the major part of this book, the major part of the great existential philosophers have really talked about the fact that we're, we're mortal and we have to face death. And yes, there are lots of ways of escaping that knowledge, a lot of religious views of immortality or, 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 or other lives that happen, but but let, let's, let's take the what seems to me the most obvious possibility that this is the, the true end of life and how do we cope with that so and I felt if I were going to write truthfully about that I had to spend a lot of time thinking about my own life and thinking about working with patients who are facing death I couldn't talk to my everyday patients about death I didn't really know how to do it but I started to work with patients who were facing a, a, a terminal cancer and for 10 years I worked with patients doing that began leading groups of, of, of patients uh, which I, I felt the groups were extremely useful for the feelings of patients how I cope with it myself I know I'm running out of time but one of the because I thought I began thinking that I might be close to death then I'm I'm 86 as it is and I'm uh, uh, one of my uh, I have a group of friends, and I'm about the only one left of them. So I'm obviously thinking about death. But one of the most useful things for me is, and I use this with patients, almost every patient I work with, this idea comes up with uh, living with regrets. And uh, if you if you think about the regrets that you're living in, what would it be like for you to live a regret-free life? Could you imagine coming to see me in a month from now and you were living a regret-free life, what would that be like? Because most of us are living lives in which we're doing things that we're really regretting, if we can take a long-distance scheme and look back on our lives. 
And for me, uh, that, that's been the most helpful thing in helping me cope with my own angst, my own anxieties about, about death, which is that I, I don't at this point have a, a lot of regrets. There are a lot of people like so many of you in this audience who express good things about me or that I've been useful to them. So I, I don't I, I don't have anything about my life that I, I truly re regret right now. I'm not doing anything. I'm still working with patients because I, I feel by this time I've gotten kind of good at it. And uh, so I, I work with patients because I, I really enjoy the work. Uh, and I'll keep doing that as long as I can. So I think when it comes to thinking about death, one thing to remember is is to, to think about living without regrets or with as few as possible. Thank okay. you, Irv. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>